Um, let me kind of give a quick explanation of what we're going to do this morning. For the last several months, we worked our, our way through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then last week, and Malachi, I about forgot Malachi. Last week we did an overview of the Old Testament uh, to set the stage for when we will be heading into the Gospel of Matthew, which will be two weeks from today. What I intended to do last week was do an overview of the intertestamental period. Now, if you've got a Bible and you're reading through your Old Testament and you come to Malachi 4 and you finish that last verse, sometimes there's a blank page, sometimes there's another page that says the New Testament, and then you start into Matthew. Well, what happened between Malachi 4 and Matthew 1? Well, it's more than just a blank page. A whole lot more. And so today what we want to do is look at that time period, which covers roughly 400, 420, 440 years. And this is what I want to challenge you with. I, I knew a bare bones outline of what happened in that time period before this past couple of weeks when I started studying. And I found this nice presentation, six minutes and 21 seconds on the intertestamental period. And the guy did a real good job. And I'm like, well, that was really good. And I'm like, how am I going to preach an hour on his? I can do it. Uh, and, those, and, and those of you who are guests, you're going an hour. Yes, we'll go an hour just so you know, maybe a little more. But uh, then I, I started rooting and digging around on this guy's website. And I found a 24-part series on the intertestamental period. 24 half-hour videos. I didn't watch them all, y'all. But I watched a lot of them, and they were really good, really informational. And I have learned more this week than I have in a long time in preparing for a sermon. So I'm excited about it. And I want us to see, last week when we did this Old Testament overview, I put up those books of the Bible, and we talked about how the historical books were first, and then the poetic books, and then the major prophets and the minor prophets. And we really didn't talk much about the prophets at all. We just acknowledged that they were there. Today, what we're going to see, we're going to spend some time um, looking at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and how that plays into this intertestamental period specifically. And let me tell you what I've been blown away by this week is the precision of God. Last week we talked about the plan of God. And this week we're going to see that plan unfolding because if you'll remember we said after Malachi, God goes silent until John the Baptist shows up in the pages of the gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for 400 plus years God is silent, but God is not inactive. Okay, And that's what we're going to see today. Through those 400, we'll say 440 years, God was working His plan in a very precise way. And that has been so encouraging to me because you know what? If He did it then, He'll do it now too. And that's what I want to challenge you with this morning. As we, we are going to have some public reading of the Scripture. And uh, those of you who aren't familiar with what we do, we do a lot of this. We do a lot of the Bible. So we ask that you stand as we read this, and we stand because we believe these are the very words of God. Amen. Inspired by God and spoken to and through His people for us today. Daniel 7, 
We're going to read verses 1 through 28. And we'll get back to this in a little bit. But I want you to hear what God has to say about what's going to happen with His people in the future. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool." His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire." As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces." As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. 
and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let me pray. God, we speak this morning of great and mysterious things, but they are not a mystery to You. Give us insight, God. Give us wisdom. And give us the power we need to live out your words, trusting that you are who you say you are, that we are who you say we are, and that you will do what you said you will do. Help us, God. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to reach back just a little bit before the end of the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to start our journey today. I said that that uh, Malachi, we're going to say, ended around 420 B.C. Now remember, with B.C., you're counting backwards, okay? So we're going to go before 440 B.C., and we're going to start in 606 B.C., okay? That's important. What Daniel just told us, he received about the year 605 B.C., okay? What had happened was Nebuchadnezzar who was leader of the Babylonian Empire, came in and invaded Judah and Jerusalem in 606 B.C. He did not destroy or overcome or overwhelm Jerusalem, but he took captive some people, which was the first wave of exiles that went into Babylonian captivity. God had promised that they would go into Babylonian captivity because they weren't faithful with the laws that God had given them. So in 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes through and he takes some people captive, among whom is Daniel, who was an Israelite, a Jew, and because he was of high standing, he was taken away in this first wave of exiles. So in about 605, he rece- I'm sorry, I said that he received this prophecy. That's wrong. He receives a prophecy that we'll look at in Daniel 2 in 605. Let me read that real quick, okay? What happens is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's troubled. And he calls for the magicians. I've about said musicians. He calls for the magicians and he says, I want you to tell me the dream that I had and I want you to tell me what it means. Well, the magicians are like, well, nobody can do that. Nobody can tell you the dream that you had. And he said, well, if I tell you the dream, you're just going to make something up. So in order to know that you know what I'm going through here, I want you to tell me the dream that I had and then interpret it for me. They said, we can't do this. So Nebuchadnezzar says, let's just kill all the wise men in the kingdom. Let's kill all the wise men and the magicians because they're, they're obviously not very wise. They're obviously not very magical. So as they're coming to get Daniel and his friends, Daniel says, hold up, let me pray about this. Daniel prays and God says, I'll, I'll let you in on what's going on here. So Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar and in Daniel 2, now we read Daniel 7 to open up with. We'll come back to that in a second. But in Daniel 2, this is what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image... This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Please note that. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, that's a lot of words, okay? So what's going on here is, this is the second year of the kingdom of Babylon, talked about Assyria last week, how Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel but was not able to take the southern kingdom of Judah. So Assyria preceded Babylon. Babylon came in and overtook Assyria and was the world power. In the second year of the Babylonian reign, this empire of Babylon is growing in might and power. And Daniel says in the second year of the reign that God has appointed a plan for the future of the world that involves Babylon falling, Persia taking over, Greece taking over Persia, and then Rome taking over Greece. Now, he didn't use these country or empire names, but rather beasts, or in this, in this place, the statue, the divisions of the statue that represented those empires. And then what of this rock and mountain? He says that these represent God's kingdom that will come and overwhelm all kingdoms and rule forever. So, anybody, okay, anybody ever see these prophetic drawings? They're like so creepy, right? It's like, I remember sitting in church and flipping through my Bible. I'm like, oh, you know, and we're going to look at beasts today and we're going to look at this, this vision. And again, is this exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw? No, but it gives us a representation. So you see Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you see the kingdom of God, which they say of Jesus and God, which is true in the, in the stone that was not cut by human hands in the mountain that rises up. But this is, these represent these four and then the fifth kingdom that's going to come to pass after Babylon. So <laughs> imagine standing, let's say it's the second year of President Trump, right? Imagine going to him and saying, uh, your kingdom's going to fall. There's going to be another kingdom after you. And then there's going to be another kingdom after that. And there's going to be another kingdom after that. But there's going to be another kingdom that's going to wipe them all out and it's going to rule forever. 
That's exactly what Daniel's doing here. He's standing before the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he's saying, you got a kingdom, it's going to end. Somebody's going to overtake yours, somebody's going to overtake theirs, somebody's going to overtake theirs, and then ultimately God's going to overtake them all. So that's what's represented in this image here. This is what, this is like what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Now, that was in, we said, 605, 606 B.C. Well, later, in 553 B.C., Daniel is still serving in the Babylonian court. He's still a wise man. He's been coming up through the ranks. He's an important person. Nebuchadnezzar is gone now, and a descendant of his, some say a son, some say a grandson, named Belshazzar comes into power. And while he's in power, Daniel has the dream that we read about at first in Daniel 7 with the beasts. Okay, And we're not going to read that again because it's doesn't need read again. But he saw these four beasts. I'm going to show you them real quick. I don't know if you can see them or not. One, two, three, four. You've got the lion with the wings. The wings that stands up as a man. You've got a bear with ribs in its mouth, three ribs specifically. Then you've got the one like a leopard, has four wings, um, four heads. It's given dominion. And then you've got this beast that wasn't like any of the other ones. It was exceedingly terrible, it said. Iron teeth, uh, breaks... The rest of what it doesn't break with its teeth with its feet. Well, again, these are the same four kingdoms and in the same order. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That's what they represent. And so Daniel has this dream while he's serving under Belshazzar and he's all freaked out by it because you'd be freaked out too if you had this dream. I promise you, you would. Okay? So, but something, something's different about this dream than the dream that... Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had seen in Daniel 2 these four kingdoms and this stone in this mountain. This stone was not cut by human hands. It came and it smashed all the other kingdoms and then it became a mountain and it was representing the kingdom of God. But in Daniel 7, which we read at the beginning, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, which represents God. And then he says... One like a son of man was brought before the Ancient of Days and to him was given an everlasting kingdom that shall not pass away. So you've got these four kingdoms here. and Again, when we're talking Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, we're talking world powers beyond anything we've ever seen with our own eyes. America is a world power, but not like this. These people ruled the known world at the time. And they were huge. We talked about Persia. Persia was where Esther took place and the Persian kings were the ones who let the people come back to Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. And they ruled from basically Egypt to India. So get a picture of that. And then uh, Greece comes in behind Persia and gets more land than that. They move over into Greece. And then Rome comes in behind that and gets even more land over into the boot of Italy and further down into Africa. And, and again, it's, just, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger. And this is what Daniel is seeing. But he sees somebody, one like a son of man, presented before God who receives an eternal kingdom that's going to rule over everybody, everywhere, for all time. And he doesn't quite understand it. But, but 
But can it be? Can it be that God is showing His people, because Daniel's a Jew who's in exile at this time in Persia now. He went with the Babylonians, ends up in Persia. He stays that long. Can it be that God is showing him what's going to happen for eternity? And He is. Can God be showing His people that they will again be ruled by Him on earth? And that His kingdom will be established on earth forever. The Jews are going, all right, we're in captivity, but God's going to set up His kingdom here on earth and present before Him this one like a son of man, a ruler like we've never seen before. Remember last week, God said that David's throne would be established how long? Forever. And so the Jews are here in this prophecy and they're like, God's going to do it. God's going to bring this Davidic kingdom back and Israel's going to be great like she was before in all of her glory and He's going to do it forever. And they're high-fiving and they're backslapping. They're like, we're in exile, but God's coming. He done told Daniel twice. And we know it's going to happen. Daniel says the vision is sure. So that was 605 B.C. when Daniel gets that second prophecy of the beast. Let me just show you this. It's a nice little graphic that shows scary beasts with scary statues side by side. So that's, they represent the same thing. It's in Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Okay? Now we don't have time to get into all the intricacies of Daniel and Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and later Daniel 8. Some things are mysteries, okay? Some things we don't Daniel didn't understand at all. So how are we going to understand it all, right? So we're going to fast forward from 606 B.C. to 586 B.C. This is when the Babylonians do come through, come into Jerusalem, and they wipe out the temple. And they take captive the last set of captives, the third set of captives, from Judah and Jerusalem into the final captivity, the final exile, where they go into Babylon. Now, during this time, while the Jews are in Babylon, in exile, they've got no temple. They're in a foreign land. And they're being kind of brought into the culture and they're kind of blending in a little bit. They don't have a temple to worship in. Well, that was huge for them in their worship. They needed a temple. They had to sacrifice sheep and goats and oxen. They had to have the high priest and all this stuff. Well, they got no temple. So they start meeting in their towns in what would become a synagogue type of system. When we move into the New Testament, you're going to hear the word synagogue a lot. Jesus taught in the synagogues. Well, this started, had its roots in this Babylonian captivity when the Jews just met where they were. Okay? And that carried over. Even when the temples rebuilt, which we'll get to in just real quick, they're still meeting in towns and in synagogues having their daily, weekly type things as they meet together. So, now, that was 586, the last wave of captivity of Babylon. Now, in 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire. So that's your second beast with the ribs in its teeth. Okay, he's been to a barbecue. He's got ribs. That's what he does. And he's the second section there, uh, the torso with the arms. This is Medo-Persia. They overtake Babylon and they become the dominant world power. Now, in 556 B.C., a Jewish, a Jewish exile serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, no, that's the wrong section. I'm sorry. Um, we'll skip that. We already talked about that. 539 Medo-Persia takes over Babylon. Cyrus, who's the first leader of the Medo-Persian empire, makes a proclamation. All you Jews who want to can go back to Jerusalem. Okay? That's 538 B.C. First exiles returned the following year. The temple is completed in Jerusalem, rebuilt in 516 B.C. 
And this begins what is called the Second Temple Era, which will run until A.D. 70, which we won't get to today. Ezra returns to Jerusalem in 458 B.C. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem in 444 B.C., rebuilds the walls, reestablishes life in Jerusalem. Malachi prophesies somewhere between 444 and 420 B.C. And then God goes silent, which is where we ended last week. But what about these other kingdoms? The Bible doesn't say anything about them outside of what we've just read. Well, let me tell you what happens, okay? For years, and I mean a long time, okay? Probably at least another hundred years or so, Persia is dominant. But there's a kingdom that's growing in power and influence in Greece. The the Greeks and the Persians fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And there's some fantastic stories of these battles. Uh, Anybody that knows the story of uh, uh, Thermopylae, right? What What was the name of the movie? 300, yeah. That's, that's Persians and Greeks fighting, okay? Spartans are from Greece and, you know, they're sticking daggers in their own hearts saying, I'll die for Greece. And they hold off the Persians at the Strait of Thermopylae and all that stuff. All that's going on. So for about 100 more years, Persia's dominant, but Greece is growing in power and influence. Then around 331 B.C., Alexander the Great, y'all know this name, right? He defeats and overtakes the Persians, making Greece the world power. Third section of the statue, third beast, Greece. Greece is the word, is what I heard. Anyway, um, Alexander the Great extends the reach of Greece down into Egypt and he builds a city called, humbly, Alexandria. Okay, He names it after himself. It becomes a center of learning. Anybody see National Treasure? Love it. Um, Part of what they find in the treasure is the books from the library at Alexandria. Okay? Greeks were learners. They wanted to learn. They wanted to grow. As Alexander's marching down through uh, Jerusalem and Judea, he takes some Jews with him into his conquest of Egypt and Alexandria. And he takes all these people with him. Well, 70 to 72 of them, they're not sure of the number, translate the Old Testament, these Jews in Alexandria, translate the Old Testament into the Greek language so that it can be read by everybody. When the Greeks moved in somewhere, they brought their language with them. They brought their culture with them. And they said, you're going to be Greek. You can be in your land, but you're going to be Greek. You're going to speak Greek. You're going to have Greek customs. So he carries these people. And while these 70 to 72 guys are in Alexandria, they translate the Old Testament into Greek. And it's what we call the Septuagint. Anybody ever heard of the Septuagint? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament commissioned by Alexander. And if you ever see it, uh, abbreviated, it's abbreviated LXX. That stands for the Septuagint, which is the Roman numerals for 70. Okay? So the Greek Old Testament is probably, well, it is, what the New Testament Christians were reading, what the New Testament Jews were reading, even, because they started speaking Greek. Again, if you're going to be Greek, you're going to speak Greek. Okay? So the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek. The Greek language becomes pervasive in the known world and Greek culture pervades. Now, things get real interesting now. 323 B.C., Alexander the Great dies. Even great people die, by the way. And the Greek kingdom is divided into seven sections, but ultimately it comes down to four sections. Okay, And those four sections are... um, four quadrants that are ruled by different people. 
Two of them we're not going to worry about at all this morning. But two of them are super important as far as the life of the Jews in this intertestamental period. It is the Seleucid Empire, which is north of Jerusalem and kind of stretching over... Let's see, I'm trying to see how y'all would see this. uh, Over toward India. So you're going up from Israel and over toward India. The other one is the Ptolemaic under Ptolemy. And it's Jerusalem and south down into Egypt. Okay? Well, these folks can't really get along. Okay, So they're always trying to take back land from each other. Well, where are they crossing over every time they're trying to take over each other? Israel, Jerusalem. I mean, they just keep fighting. And Jerusalem, Judea, Israel's right in the middle of it all. So they're just getting battered. They're kind of like a punching bag between two boxers. They just keep getting knocked back and forth. Okay, So you've got the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic. It, that's spelled with a P-T, Ptolemaic. Uh, empires. They're, and they're going to fight for a long time. And Judah, Israel, Jerusalem is going to be in the middle of it. Now, in this time period, the Greeks are spreading their culture and imprinting themselves indelibly on the world. In Jerusalem and throughout Judea, Greece is bringing sporting events. Anybody ever heard of the Olympics? Okay. They're bringing sporting events. That's one of the big things that they love to do. And they're bringing that with their worldview into plain sight. Now, they're building sports arenas. And they're playing sports. Here's the problem. Okay, kids, you ready for this? Most of the time they play their sports naked. Nude for you sophisticated people. They play them without clothes. Well, if you're a Jew, that's not all right. Okay? Hopefully if you're not a Jew, that's not all right. But anyway, the culture is becoming so pervasively Greek. This is happening even in Jerusalem. The Jews are starting to take part in what's going on in the culture around them. They're playing sports in the nude. There are reports, a lot of reports, a lot of historical reports, that there were some Jews... Now get this. Some of y'all won't understand this and I'm glad you won't. Some of the Jews are getting uncircumcised so that they can fit in among the other uncircumcised people. I don't know how that works. I didn't look, okay? But that's actually what's happening. They're getting uncircumcised so that they're not embarrassed of the sign of the covenant that God had given them to be a distinct people. And this is what's happening. They're becoming Greek. They're becoming just brought into the culture and they're becoming Greek. There's even a sports arena directly down the hill from the temple in plain sight of everything going on in the temple. And that temple's still there that uh, that we saw in Ezra. Now, after a period of time, this is when it gets interesting. The leader of the Seleucid kingdom, that's that northern going over toward uh, India kingdom, is a guy named Antiochus IV who calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means God manifest. He's a humble guy. He just calls himself God manifest. I am God. Worship me. And he was determined to take Egypt and take over that Ptolemaic empire in the south from Jerusalem down toward Egypt. He's determined to do that. He becomes very antagonistic toward the Jews in his journeys down that way. And he slaps them around. And they call him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. So it's kind of a play on word. He's calling himself God. They're like, you're nuts. He forbids them from practicing their religion around 174 B.C. And he sends priests throughout his empire to sacrifice pigs to Zeus, who was the chief god of the Greek culture. 
and so on. On local altars, Antiochus IV Epiphanes says, sacrifice a pig to Zeus on the local altars. Well, if you're a Jew, you got a problem with that? Hopefully you do. They didn't touch swine. They didn't touch pork. And they're going to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem and in all these places where they're meeting in their synagogues and having sacrifices. Something happens though. A guy named Mattathias has five sons. He lives in a town called Modin, which is just northwest of Jerusalem. Well, as they're getting ready to sacrifice the pig in his village, Mattathias steps up and he kills the priest who's going to sacrifice the pig. And then him and his sons run into the wilderness. And that starts what we call the Maccabean Revolt, if you've ever heard of that. So it's Mattathias and his five sons. They take themselves and a bunch of people that they know into the wilderness, which we, not wilderness like here. Wilderness is more like the desert there. But they've got thousands of people following, and they start this guerrilla-type warfare. And the first place they take is Modin. And they, they overcome uh, Antiochus and his armies, and they set up their camp kind of in Modin. And then they start just making advances into different towns, and they start winning. It's almost like God wants them to win or something because there are some fantastic stories of like they've got 3,000 men and the Seleucids have 120,000 men and they win. The Maccabeans win. I mean, there's just like crazy things going on. It's like God's fighting for them or something. It's like God has a plan. It's like God has a purpose and that He's working through people even though He's not talking. So in this guerrilla-type warfare, the Jews who had adopted... uh, who had maintained their religious zeal, start going into these towns and they start purifying the people of God. And they start getting rid of the people who had taken on these Greek customs. They push out the Seleucids and they win some land. So when we, when we see the New Testament and we see this land that Israel was occupying, a lot of it was due to what these Maccabeans had done in their revolt. I mean, they really expanded. The ultimate... Um, let me not get ahead of myself, Okay. Mattathias dies about a year later and he hands over control of the army and the towns that they went to his son named Judah Maccabee, which means Judah the Hammer. Hammer, right? Not MC, but Judah. Judah the Hammer, which could refer either to his weapon or just the ferocity of his fighting. Under Judah Maccabee, several towns and cities are taken back into Jewish control. And then in 164, this is big, In 164 B.C., Jerusalem is retaken by the Maccabees. That's that's the big place. That's the capital. That's important. And so the temple, which had been desecrated by foreign worship and worshipers, was cleansed and rededicated. This is what started what what we see in the New Testament as the Feast of Dedication. Jesus attended this. Uh, We see it in John. I don't think we'll see it in Matthew. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But anyway... The Feast of Dedication is when the Maccabee was established when the Maccabees had moved back into Jerusalem, taken back control, cleansed the temple, and rededicated it and set up the worship of Yahweh, God, again in Jerusalem. So, the Feast of Dedication happened. That, that feast is also what we call Hanukkah. Anybody familiar with Hanukkah? Don't know if this is true or not, but they say... Uh, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication, is based on a rabbinic tradition that the Maccabees could only find one small jug of oil to light the menorah, the, the candlestick, the Jewish candlestick. 
and that it really should only have had enough oil to burn that menorah for one day, but it lasted for eight until they could get more oil. So that's why Hanukkah is eight days long. That's what they're celebrating. They're celebrating this miraculous oil that burned for eight days when it only should have burned for one day. So this is all happening in this intertestamental period. Now, out of all this, the region of Judah or Judea, including Jerusalem and cities and towns around it, became independent. The Maccabees actually established a kingdom again. And they're in the middle of this third beast here. They're in the middle of Greece. But they are independent. And they reestablish temple worship. They appoint Jonathan Maccabee, Jews' brother, as high priest. So now there's a high priest again. But note this. This high priest is both religious and political. That's going to set a stage for all this stuff that's going on in the New Testament too. This is when this happens. And so they knuckle, knuckle up and dig down and they start defending their land and they're taking some more land. So they're kind of growing. So now the Seleucids, who are not happy about losing this area, send a large army to retake the land. But while they're coming, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes dies and the army retreats back to Syria. Now during this time, Judah, Maccabee, makes an allegiance with a growing world power. Rome, our fourth, the legs and feet and this crazy looking beast on the bottom. Of course, they're all kind of crazy looking. But this beast that's unlike... He makes kind of a tentative agreement like, hey, you guys help us out. Keep us safe from these Seleucids because Rome and the Seleucids didn't get along. So they make kind of this tenuous uh, alliance. And Rome is growing in power and they're nabbing sections of this divided Greek empire slowly but surely. So the Jewish nation exists under Maccabean rulers who would, have become, who would become known as the Hasmonean or Hasmonean. I, don't know, I think hillbillies say Hasmonean, but I think it's actually Hasmonean Empire. The Hasmonean name would come from Mattathias' great-grandfather, the first Maccabee. His great-grandfather was named Asmonius. So they named their kingdom after their ancestor, Hasmoneans. And the, when we get into the New Testament, we'll talk about that more, but just so you know that. Now... In 63 AD, we're almost done, the Roman general Pompey Pompey, was sent to Jerusalem to determine who would become leader of Judah because in the line of succession from the Maccabees there was some tension about who should be ruling. The 63 AD. So this is... Where were we last? We were in the 100... So it's almost 100 years later after the Maccabean revolt. Pompey comes and he's going to set up who's going to be leader in Judea. And while he's there, he goes ahead and conquers Jerusalem for Rome. He's like, hey, I'm here. Let's just take the place. So that's what he does. And this spells the end of this independence of Judah, which lasted for about 100 years. And they became part of the growing Roman Empire, which was ruled at that time by a guy named Julius Caesar, who was the last dictator of Rome. Now, Caesar will be killed by a plot of several senators, including his protege, Marcus Brutus, E2 Brute, on the Ides of March in 44 BC. And so, after he was killed, the rule of Rome was entrusted to what was called the Triumvirate, made up of a guy named Lapidus, a guy named Mark Antony, and a guy named Octavian. Now, I mention Mark Antony because in 41 BC, which is just three years later, Mark Antony, who's part of the rulers of Rome, appoints a guy from Idumea. Now, Idumea is just south and east of Jerusalem and Judea. 
And these Idumeans were actually ancestors, descendants from uh, Esau, the Edomites. Remember we talked about them last week. And we talked about them in Malachi. God said, I'm going to destroy the Edomites. Well, here's what happens. These descendants of Esau, again, they were distant relatives, became Jewish because the Maccabees had kind of come down and conquered some of their land. So these Edomites become Jewish. Okay? And they're from Idumea. Well, Mark Anthony in 41 B.C. appoints an Idumean man named Herod and his brother, I don't know how to say it, Phaziel, not Fozzie the bear, Phaziel. He appoints them as tetrarchs in Judea to help support the ruler of that area, a guy named Hyrcanus. Hyrcanus, who was in that line of Maccabees, was deposed by a man named Antigonus and Herod went to Rome. And what he was doing in Rome, he wanted to plead with the leaders in Rome to help restore Hyrcanus to power. But while Herod is in Rome, the Roman Senate names Herod as king of Judea. So he went to have somebody else set up and they say, why don't you just be king of Judea? Well, I think I'll do that. So this Idumean man, this descendant of Esau who was raised Jewish, becomes the king of Judea by the Roman Senate. So, that goes on for a few years. In 31 B.C., Octavian, who was one of that triumvirate, whose full name is Gaius Octavian Thurinus, and who was the nephew-slash-adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar, Octavian became the first emperor of Rome following the Battle of Actium. And he chooses his name as leader to be Caesar Augustus. Now, at this time, 31 B.C., Rome has its first Caesar. Again, Julius Caesar was a dictator. But now you've got emperors. You've got Caesars. They, they claim the title Caesar. And the first Caesar is Caesar Augustus. The world is Roman. And Jerusalem, like so much of the known world, is governed by these Roman emperors called Caesars. The Roman world continued to use the Greek language because it worked. It's, it's a very precise beautiful, powerful, structured language. So they used the Greek language throughout their empire. The Romans built roads and roads and roads. and Jim Justice would be proud of the Romans. I'm telling you. Let's build more roads. And they connected all parts of their empire with roads so that people could travel safely on these Roman roads. And this network of roads was more extensive and sound than any that the world had ever seen. Introduced in this time too, which wasn't really introduced, it was just something that was common knowledge, was the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And it brought stability to the ruled world where trade and commerce extended throughout the Roman Empire to bring unparalleled unity and prosperity. There's peace. There's been conflict for all these years with all these beasts, all these tearing and plucking and, and chewing and stomping and ribs and all this stuff going on. Well, now there's peace. And Rome is firmly in control. So now remember, Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, the area around it, is governed by King Herod. King Herod's not a nice man. He's violent and harsh, but he's also taken on a bunch of building projects, one of which is a renovation and upgrade of the Jewish temple. Again, this guy practices Judaism. We're not real sure he was truly Jewish, but he takes this temple that was built by in Ezra's time, in the book of Ezra, and I mean, he just makes it opulent. 
I mean, it is a sight to behold. It takes a long time. It's upgraded. It's beautiful pools and gold and giant buildings. And they're kind of like, okay, thanks for that. We don't really like you, but thanks for the temple. It's nice. We, we like it. So they still see him as an outsider by true Jews because, again, he's a descendant of Esau. He's an Idumean, but he's helping them out some. Jerusalem and Judea cooperate grudgingly with Herod and with Rome, but they are looking for something else. Daniel had this vision. And in the first vision, this giant stone that was not cut by human hands come and crush the statue. And it became a mountain that filled the whole earth. So Rome was included in that, right? The Ancient of Days came in Daniel 7 and made an end to all the beasts. And His kingdom was an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. There will be no more beasts. Only this one like a son of man who was given this eternal kingdom by the Ancient of Days. So, Rome, you be Rome, but we know somebody's coming. We know that God is going to hand the kingdoms of all the earth into His messenger, into His servant's hand, into His king's hand, and we, the Jews, are going to be the dominant people in all of the earth, in all of the heavens and the earth, for all eternity, because God is going to send His man. And He's going to sit on David's throne forever. So fine, Rome, but you just wait because you're going to get yours and we're going to rule. We're going to see the kingdom of God established in Jerusalem again. God has promised that. So proud but mastered, the Jews look to God, hoping to not only become independent again, but for the, to get the very power of the world to rule over the entire world as the children and people of God. Almighty God, the Ancient of Days. Hadn't God promised that His kingdom made up of His people would be the rock and mountain that would never be removed? Hadn't God promised that the one like a son of man would establish God's kingdom on earth and that it would never pass away? Hadn't God given through the mouths of His prophets more than 400 specific prophecies about a coming Messiah? Didn't God have a plan that He had shared with His people? So now, at this point, we find ourselves around 20 B.C. or so. And the Jews are just waiting. Some of them patiently, some of them not so patiently. They're trying to start insurrections. They're they're fighting Herod. They'll fight every ruler that comes into contact with them because they think all this is going away. And we, the people of God, will rule with God in an everlasting kingdom based in Jerusalem. Because God's got a plan, doesn't He? And we'll see when we start into Matthew that God does have a plan and it's nothing like what they thought it was going to be. They missed it. By and large, they missed the plan. This is true. This happened. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Any of them around anymore? You're like, well, there's Greece. Well, not really. They're bankrupt, okay? They're not a world power. But they're gone. But is God's king sitting in Jerusalem right now? He's not. So did God's plan abort? Did God fail? Did God lie? 
Let me just say he didn't. And we'll see in Matthew exactly what he did to bring this plan about. But for well, I'm going to leave you right there. We're done. I'm going to give you three application points and we're going to be done. First, as far as application goes, we always want to apply what we've learned. We don't want to just learn something and have a big head. We want to move through and strengthen the body so that we can do what we've seen. The first thing that I want you to think about as far as application is the stunning accuracy of biblical prophecy. Daniel received this first vision that he interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar in 5... What did we say? 585 B.C. 585 years before Jesus came. In the second year of the Babylonian Empire. Five something B.C. Well, the Persians didn't come around until four something B.C. The Greeks didn't come around until three something B.C. And the Romans weren't in power until like 63 B.C. So almost 500 years before the Romans came about and were the world power... God is saying, I'm going to do this in this order and this is what it's going to look like. It's not just Daniel, which we saw in brief, very brief today. But 4,000 years of Old Testament history, God gave prophecies that told of how things would go in the world both in ancient times and throughout eternity. The prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of the Messiah, who would be Jesus Himself, number over 400. They tell where He would be born. They tell that He would go to Egypt and come back. They tell where He would live, how He would ride in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem on His triumphal entry, and on and on and on and on. God not only has a plan, but He has made that plan clearly known. Now... Are there prophecies that are hard to decipher? You bet there are. We don't understand the full mind of God and so much of prophecy is seen in retrospect. There are prophecies that are waiting to be fulfilled and once they're fulfilled, we'll look back and go, oh, that's what God meant by that. But my point here is that we can see God's plan foretold in the past and know that the fulfilling of those prophecies paved the way for the fulfilling of His entire plan. He has not failed yet. And he's been very specific about what he was going to do. Read Isaiah 53. It tells how Jesus would die. Very specifically. Most Orthodox Jews won't read Isaiah 53 because it's too much like Jesus and they don't accept Him as their Messiah. Which is crazy. They rejected their Messiah. But they missed these prophecies. As we move into Matthew in the next few weeks, we'll start to see some of these prophecies being fulfilled. And this is what I want application-wise. I want it to make our hearts sing. Knowing that this same Jesus, whose first coming was so clearly foretold, that same Jesus, it's foretold, is coming back again. That's been foretold. And I want it to move us to longing and passion. And I want that longing and that passion to motivate us to live in a way that glorifies Him in the present, looking forward to our future with Him. Titus puts it this way, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. If I am looking forward to Jesus coming back, I will be zealous for good works. I will purify myself as much as I can with the help of the Holy Spirit looking forward to that day when I see Jesus face to face. Look back at these prophecies. They are stunning in their precision. I wish we had more time to cover more of Daniel. It's amazing. Daniel 8 talks about this whole Ptolemaic Seleucid structure and what happens there and beasts and a ram and a goat and they fight and this one overcomes this one. It's this whole Seleucid Ptolemaic to the letter. But look back at these prophecies in the Old Testament. Know that they were fulfilled in the New Testament, most of them in Christ, and help that make you look forward to His coming again, which is foretold in the Old and the New Testaments. And may we purify ourselves waiting for that day when we see Him. Second point of application. God's sovereignty over the world. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Britain, America. All of these kingdoms are kingdoms that God has set up and they are kingdoms that He will tear down. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let me tell you what, y'all. Listen to me. There is nothing that is out of control out there. I don't care what CNN tells you. I don't care what Fox News tells you. I don't care what Mark Levin tells you. I don't care what Shepard Smith tells you. Nothing is out of control out there. God raises rulers up and He takes them down. And He is working everything according to the counsel of His will. There is no corner of the world, there is no ruler of the world that is not under the direct influence of the sovereignty of God. No maverick molecule in the universe. So we're good. I mean, really. Things are scary. There are bad things happening. I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying shut your eyes and act like nothing bad's happening. But what I am saying is dad is in control. And the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow to lay your head down at night and rest easy. If you're not firmly convinced of the sovereignty of God in the affairs of the nations, you will worry and anxiety and cry yourself to sleep if you sleep at all at night. But if you know that God's in control and He's got everything laid out in a precise plan and that He is sovereign over the rulers of nations, you're going to rest pretty good, which is what He wants. God is sovereign. Live that way. Third application point in the last. God's Timing is perfect. We look at our situations and surroundings. Those Jews looked at their situations and surroundings and they're going, How long, O God, until you act on behalf of your name and your people? We are slaves. And they've had that 100 years of independence in this intertestamental period and they thought, We're doing it! We're doing it! And then Rome comes and smacks them around like a rag doll. We're not doing it anymore, but we're waiting. And God, why don't you just do it now? And people would act and they would try to start rebellions and revolts, trying to start something for God. But Galatians 4, 4 4-5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to me. We are the kingdom that will never be shaken. We, the people of God, the children of God, adopted as sons and daughters, will receive the kingdom that will never pass away. And one like a son of man, born of a woman, will be the one who reigns and rules for eternity as David's descendant and as God most high. God's timing is perfect. 4,000 years of Old Testament history last week, 400 years of intertestamental history this week. We're going to start into the New Testament with Matthew. And here we are in the year 2018 A.D. at Odomini in the year of our Lord. 2,000 years past when Jesus Christ walked the earth. And what I'm telling you is God's timing is perfect. Looking at all that happened in these 400 years that we looked at today, we see changes that set things up for the arrival of Jesus. We saw the Jews move to a synagogue system in Babylon, which would carry through into the New Testament times. We see a revamped temple which was around in Jesus' time. We see a precise Greek language put into place that would be the perfect language for the New Testament to be written in that we still study today. And we see a peace in place in the Pax Romana with roads and networks through which the gospel could be disseminated out into the whole world after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. God literally was waiting until the perfect time for His Son and His gospel to be introduced into the world. And He did it with magnificent precision. The fullness of time. And we wait and we yearn and we groan waiting for that final day. And what I want to tell you this morning is it's coming in His time. The stunning accuracy of biblical prophecy, God's sovereignty over the world, and God's perfect timing. That's what I see specifically in this intertestamental period. Let's act like we believe it. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that your timing is perfect. And thank you, God, that your plan is perfect, and that plan includes us as your people. And if there be those here this morning, God, who do not know you as Almighty God, if they do not know Jesus, your Son, as Savior, pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins, show them their need for forgiveness. And may they know that that forgiveness was purchased on a Roman cross in the body of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, bore the punishment for our sins upon that cross, died, was buried, but came back alive, and then ascended into heaven and is now seated at your right hand until that perfect time when you say it is finished. Go set up your kingdom on earth. May we all trust that Jesus for our salvation. And may you get glory as we live out lives that show how magnificent and beautiful and glorious you are. Thank you for your perfection, God. We praise it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.